Is it that, for example, if a scholar comes in the Quran exploring the books of Hadith, and today every doctor that you visit tells you try to has to wake up every morning for the Fajr prayers, observe Hajjah. Muslim immigrants in some and some European countries. One of the most important discussions that takes place around the Muslim world. By Muslims from all walks of life, regardless of their background, nationality, education, race, and gender, as the concern and the reference to fiqh and the renewal of fiqh and whether the fiqh that we have today is outdated and in need of rejuvenation in need of revival and in need to be renewed And this discussion is not only confined to academics or people who live in the West. It's not only a group of youth who raise such a question and concern. But indeed it is the global Muslim community that has this concern. And many people have become disheartened with faith, with the religion of Islam due to the fact that fiqh has remained the same for the past 700 years and we find a very minimal amount of renewal in the Islamic clause and jurisprudence. And many of those laws happen to be out of date. I have met religious, pious individuals who happen to be in the leadership of many Islamic centers in the West through my travels. And one of their primary concerns, the leadership of Islamic institutions, one of the very first questions they ask a seminarian is that why can't we have a consensus on the day of Eid? Why can't we have a consensus on the beginning of the month of Ramadan? Why is it that our community is divided every single year on the day of Eid, on the beginning of Ramadan, on the nights of Qadr? While today, science can easily tell us the moment that the crescent is born and the exact time when it is possible for the moon or the crescent to be witnessed and which areas there is a possibility for it to be seen 
And that should be enough for us to begin the month of Ramadan and end the month of Ramadan. Many prominent members of the Shi'i community, the global Shi'i community have raised a concern, an extremely legitimate concern, that why is it that we work in the United States and Canada and Europe and Australia and New Zealand, we pay tax, everything we do is transparent, However, when it comes to the payment of our homes, when it comes to the distribution of our homes, we don't find the same transparency. Similarly, why is it that our homes has to fly overseas while we have loans on our Islamic centers and masjids? While we still have loans, bank loans for our Islamic schools, our community here is in need of Islamic schools to send the children to Islamic schools so that they live and grow and educate themselves according to the teachings of Islam. We are in need of larger Islamic centers because our community is constantly growing. And therefore we need to buy new properties, new land, and that requires we take a loan from the bank. But why is it that we have to pay our homes to overseas? When we still have loans on our Islamic centers, the house of God, here in the United States or elsewhere in the West, we don't have enough money to print books. We don't have enough money to create attractive websites. We don't have enough money to sponsor conferences and seminars to educate our own members of the community. I have also spoken to many physicians who tell me that some of the Islamic laws and regulations go directly against the latest findings of medicine. What do I mean? They say for you to start your meal with salt and end your meal with salt, that's literally equivalent to poisoning yourself. Why would you want to consume salt? We're telling people to stop consumption of salt. And here are the scholars telling us to start your food with salt and end with salt. Or other indicators that we should drink water less. And today, every doctor that you visit tells you, try to drink a lot of liquids. Try to drink a lot of water. When it comes to the Islamic laws, don't drink a lot of water. Drink water as much to quench your thirst. So how is it that Islamic teachings and some of the laws and regulations contradict the scientific findings? I have spoken to a lot of members within the community that tell you, say it, today early marriage no longer works. Indeed, early marriage at the age of 15 and 16 was for those who lived in tribal areas. They lived in tents. 
What did you need to get married? You needed a tent. Their jobs didn't change. The way they educated themselves didn't change. Their income didn't change. Their lifestyle didn't change. They lived out in the deserts. So marriage was something extremely accessible. It wasn't something difficult for them. Today, we cannot marry our children at such an age. Why? Because number one, they're not as mature. They cannot run a family. They cannot be responsible and go under the responsibilities of having a marriage, having a family, and having children. Similarly, the Islamic laws will tell you that the multiplicity of children is something that's desirable. Why not have 10 kids? Why not have 12 kids? Why not have at least 5-6 kids? As the multiplicity of children still desirable in our time today, are we going to focus on the quantity of members from the Muslim community and the Muslim Ummah? Are we going to focus on the quality of the members of the Muslim Ummah? Why do we want multiplicity of children when 40% of the Muslim immigrants in some, in some European countries are living off welfare? 40% of the Muslim refugees, immigrants coming out of Afghanistan, coming out of Iraq, coming out of Syria and elsewhere are on welfare. And they become lazy, not go to work. Why? Because in the end of the month, they get a paycheck from the welfare system. And the list of reform and the list of concerns and the list of questions facing the institution of fiqh Within Islam, and specifically the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt continues. It does not stop. Everywhere you go, you find that people have this concern. So is it that the Hawza, the seminary, is an out-of-date community of folks, individuals, scholars, who repeat the same opinion of other scholars, who happen to come to the same exact findings of other scholars. And for 700 years, this has been a repetitive system. Is this the case or no? Scholars are actually in continuous research, questioning one another, coming up with new theories, new developments, new findings, exploring, the Qur'an, exploring the books of hadith, exploring the opinion of other scholars, and developing fiqh, rejuvenating fiqh, renewing fiqh. Is it that, for example, if a scholar comes and says the age of puberty for a woman is nine, so from the age nine, this girl has to fast. She has to perform the fajr prayers. She has to perform Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha. 
If she has money, she has to go to Hajj. She has to pay khums. She has to make sure that she doesn't sin. Allah will keep her responsible for all her acts just like a 40-year-old woman. Today, when many people question this, how can a 9-year-old child be responsible for all those things? How is it that this merciful Lord, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who has brought this religion to bring people ease, tranquility, would want a nine-year-old girl to, for example, fast for 19 hours, 18 hours, 16 hours, even 12 hours, 8 hours. How is that possible? How is it possible that she has to wake up every morning for the Fajr prayers, observe hijab? When this question is raised, do all scholars have an agreement that no, we're all going to be under the opinion that the age of bulugh or puberty or the age where Islam mandates its laws onto a female is nine. Tough luck, go and live. Life goes on. Or no, other scholars explore the Quran they explore hadith, they explore the opinion of other scholars, they explore the time and era that we live in today, and they'll come up with a different opinion. That is why other scholars tell you no. Puberty of a man, bulugh of a man and woman is the same. Once they go through the physical puberty, physical majority, both of them become baligh. And from that moment on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holds them responsible. So it's not that the Hawza or the scholars are sitting there waiting for one of them to come to a specific finding. And when one of them says, ah, I found it. Then everybody drops their pants, closes their books and says, you know what, we're done. Or let's move to another subject. No. Indeed, in Bahthul Kharij, the highest level of discussion within the Hawza and seminary, after you study for 10 or 12 years, sometimes 15 years, you join the status of discussion with the Maraja. It's an open discussion. Where a Marja, a grand Marja, is sitting there and he's discussing for an hour one of his theories. And there are students who have studied for 10, 12 years that join this classroom and they debate his theories. For example, he's come to a finding through the hadith of an individual who they have found to be weak. So they come and debate him and say, this person who you trusted in this hadith happens to be a liar or happens to be a fabricator. Please Renew your opinion in his regard. The marja' looks at this, looks at the evidence, and he may change his perspective. He may change his opinion. And this is the philosophy behind ijtihad. This is the philosophy behind having so many different individuals, thousands and thousands of individuals from different backgrounds, different nations, different languages, different educational backgrounds, different mindsets, mentalities, or else 
All we need is 5, 10 people, 15 people to do this at the Hawza. We don't need 20,000, 30,000 people joining the Hawza of Najaf, joining the Hawza of Karbala, joining the Hawza of the holy city of Qom. From Africa to India to the Arab countries to the United States, Europe, every, every part of the world. People coming to study Islamic law and jurisprudence. The philosophy behind that is having multiple perspectives, different tastes, different kinds of understanding when it comes to the Islamic law. <coughs> and a lot of people think that Sharia and Fiqh is the same. No. Sharia is one thing, Fiqh is another thing. Sharia is that which has been given to us by Allah, by Rasulullah and the Quran. Explained to us through the ma'sumin of Ahlul Bayt, the infallible. That's called Sharia. What does Sharia mean? Sharia is a river, a pure river of clean water. Enjoy, quench your thirst. Why? Because this has come to you from Allah. This has come to you through the infallible sources. You cannot question it. That's the essence of faith. That is Islam. That's Sharia. But what is fiqh? Sharia, nobody can question. Nobody can come and tell you Sharia goes against scientific findings. Sharia is never incorrect. Sharia is never incomplete. Yes, maybe one day we thought that the earth was flat and then we realize it wasn't. But that was not the teachings of Sharia. We had a limited understanding of the Sharia. When we find this finding, we go to the Quran and we find no. The Sharia has actually taught us what the latest scientific findings is telling us today. So what is fiqh? Sharia one is never incomplete. It's always correct because it comes from Allah. Allah's knowledge cannot be incomplete. Allah's knowledge cannot be incorrect. But what is fiqh? Fiqh is when the scholars explore the Sharia for new findings. What is the perspective of the Sharia of the Sharia when it comes to dissections? You're going to medical school, you're doing dissections. Sharia doesn't say anything about it. There's no verse in the Quran that speaks about dissections. There's no hadith from the Prophet that talks about dissections. So fiqh and a faqih and a mujtahid explores the Quran, the hadith, aql, the consensus among scholars, and all the resources that he has to bring a new finding, a new law, and answer a question. That is called fiqh. Everything that has developed, life that has developed, the growth of the Muslim community, the economical situation of the Muslim community, the political situation of the Muslim community, all of that needs fiqhi solutions. People have questions. 
Life goes on. Where do they get the solutions from? And their, answer, their questions answered from fiqh. Now while sharia cannot be incorrect, fiqh can be incorrect. Why? Because fiqh is the finding of fallible individuals. Fallible scholars. While sharia is holy, fiqh isn't. Why? Because like I said, fiqh, a scholar, a grand marja, a jurist, can have a fatwa today and by tomorrow it can change. Through discussion. That, brothers and sisters, is the beauty of the school of Ahlul Bayt. Ijtihad. Why? Because other schools do not allow ijtihad. They say once Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal came and he founded the Hanbali school of thought and he did his ijtihad. Ijtihad no longer exists. This is the Hanbali school of thought. This is the Maliki school of thought. This is the Shafi'i school of thought. But when we come to the school of Al-Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad al-Sadiq. The Ja'fari school of thought, we find no. Our Imams trained us and trained such scholarship so that we continue to explore the Sharia. We, we continue to renew and rejuvenate our fiqh so that we can be an alive community, not a dead one. What do I mean? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says He has revealed this Qur'an to me and you. لِمَا يُحْيِيكُمْ For a message that will give you life. So in the course of history, in the course of life, you are not seen as a dead idol community. But as a successful community that's rejuvenating itself and conquering the highest mountains of human perfection. Let us go to, before we begin discussing this step by step, let's go to the ayah that I began my talk with to get some insight on where the Quran wants to take us. What the Qur'an wants from us. How is the Qur'an guiding us? Chapter 9, Surah Al-Tawbah, verse 122. This verse was revealed when Rasulullah was in Medina giving his classes, teaching the Sharia, Teaching the Quran, many people began to relocate to Medina. They left their countries, they left their villages, they left their cities, they all moved to Medina. So many of the Muslims who occupied different land left that land and came to Medina. That land one day had Muslims, now it doesn't because they all came to Medina. Rasulullah would send them to caravans, they wouldn't want to go. Rasulullah would send them to battlefield, they wouldn't want to go. Rasulullah would tell them to go and do business, they wouldn't want to go. Why? Because Ya Rasulullah, when we go, you continue to teach Islam. You continue to teach the Quran. You continue to teach the Sharia. 
We go and come back and we've missed out on so much knowledge. We don't want to go. We all want to be your students. We all want to sit here and seek knowledge. That's the most important thing for us. And this became a dilemma for the Muslim community. Why? Because they weren't doing business. They weren't going to battle. They were all concentrating themselves and their numbers in one city. And Islam was not growing. So Allah came to give solution to this problem. All the believers cannot remain in one place. And they cannot all travel. Life needs to take its normal course of action. Some have to remain here and the rest have to go about their lives. Then there has to be a number of folks, number of individuals from every tribe, from every family, from every community, from every city, from every country. A number of folks that remain with the Prophet. They learn Islam, they learn Hadith, they learn the Quran, they learn the Sharia. To seek the fiqh of deen. To learn deen. To learn religion. To learn the religious laws. And I don't mean by... Well, the ayah doesn't mean by deen. The fiqh of deen is fiqh. So they go and read the Rasal al-Amaliyah. And they come and they say, we've done the fiqh. No, fiqh is Islamic history. It's Islamic philosophy. It's Islamic jurisprudence. It is tafsir. It is all aspects of all the Islamic sciences combined. And then, وَلِيُنذِرُوا And teach their people, قَوْمَهُمْ Their people, إِذَا رَجَعُوا إِلَيْهِمْ Once they return to them, لَعَلَّهُمْ يَحْذَرُونَ What do you realize from this verse? Two things. One, do not be Meisner when it comes to supporting those people who have left to study religion because the rest of you are working. They have left. They're doing their task on your behalf. If nobody leaves, then nobody is going to be educated about Islam. If everybody leaves, your businesses will shut down. So don't be Meisner. And I tell you this, after 12 years of spending in the seminary, and Allah has my witness, I say this with absolutely no selfish reasons. I never found one community, one institution from the West, from the United States, to say we're going to give our funds to those who study in the seminary. You don't know whether those people are able to buy their books, to rent their homes. I met with several people in the past couple of months who would become the most brilliant of scholars and researchers. And I tell them, why is it that you've left the seminary? Why don't you come back? They say, Sayyid, we cannot afford living in the seminary, not having jobs. How can we pay for our families? And don't tell me, that your son who's going to law school or medical school deserves a better life than a person who goes and studies at the seminary. 
It's okay for your son to be driving a Lexus and a BMW and a Mercedes and living in the best homes, having a comfortable life, taking his kids to private school. But the guy who left to go and study at the seminary, studying day and night to come back to rejuvenate the community, the educated com to educate the community, has to work with Uber on his side job. What a shame. Shame on us. This is shameful. And that is why nothing is going to change in our community if we keep on moving in this direction. We will stay where we are for another 20 years and 30 years and 50 years. And we shouldn't complain. Don't keep on complaining. Say it. There is nobody to educate us. What have you done? Have you chosen the youth from your community, the brightest of them, the most righteous of them, the most eloquent of them, and say, we will sponsor you through your schooling at the seminary, five years, ten years. And when you come back, you will be our resident alim. And we will support you. And we will fulfill your needs. What do you hear from this verse? Do we just read the Quran and not explore it the way it speaks to us? The way that it brings solutions to us. Here is a solution to our problem, but we don't want to take it. We don't want to believe in it. We don't want to comprehend it. We don't want to understand it. The Quran is giving us solution. First of all, it says that yes, the rest of you go and become successful businessmen. Go and become successful lawyers, successful doctors, successful engineers. Be the most successful people. In fact, be the wealthiest of people. Why? Because Islam is in need of your wealth. You're the one that's going to buy the masjid. You're the one that's going to build the masjid. You're the one that's going to sponsor the scholarship at the masjid. Go and become successful. And at the same time, make sure there is a council, like I said, that chooses the brightest of men and the women and sends them to the seminary to seek Islamic education. So there he doesn't have to stress about his bills and where he lives and how he's going to end up buying his books. And then after 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, and I don't mean six months, with all due respect, six months, one year, two years, three years, that does nothing for you in the seminary. That does nothing for you in the seminary. Sponsor them for at least a decade. And when they return, then you have no problems at your community. Why? Because let's read the verse again. This is very important. And for them to teach their community once they... Once they... Return to them. What does this mean? <laughs> this means don't import people from outside. This guy is one of you from your community. He grew up with you. He knows all those members of the community when he comes back to them. And that is why he's able to connect with them. Speak their language and teach them in the most appropriate manner. This is what the ayah is trying to tell us. 
So today when we come to the fiqh, our fiqh, the situation of the institution of fiqh, and we realize that it has some flaws. What is one of the solutions in this ayah that speaks of fiqh? As if this person was one of your community, he would be better off giving you fiqhi solutions. Teaching you of fiqh. And that is why we will examine this topic in the following manner. One of the most important topics. And I want you to give me your undivided attention. Number one, the influence of circumstance on fiqh. Number two, the influence of politics on fiqh. Number three, the influence of economy on fiqh. Number four, the influence of the growth of the Muslim community on fiqh. And number five, the personal perspective and psychology of scholars and its influence on fiqh after your loudest salawat ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad. The influence of circumstance on the institution of fiqh is something that cannot be denied. It's something many people are unaware of. What do I mean? When somebody comes to the imam and says, Ya ibn Rasulullah, tell me of the etiquettes of food and eating. He says to him, begin with salt and end with salt. Why? Because those people lived in the Arabian Peninsula. Did they have ACs? At the heat, the 110, 20 degrees of the Arabian Peninsula, how were they sweating? Day and night. Endless sweating. Losing all the salt within their body, so the imam tells him, begin with salt and end with salt. But if somebody had gone to them from the colder part of the world, the part of the world where people don't sweat, they have to cover themselves, from the cold weather, would the imam tell him to start with salt and end with salt? This is the influence of circumstance. A faqih is not a faqih if he does not understand the circumstance and the role it plays in the terminologies of fiqh, in exploring fiqh, and coming with new theories of fiqh. People would come to the Prophet, to the imams, telling them, how much water should we consume? Very legitimate question. The Imam says, quench your thirst. Don't walk around drinking water. Why? Because how far was the distance between where he slept and the bathroom? Tell me. So you wake up at 2 a.m., you need to use the bathroom. You have to end up walking 15 minutes to get to the bathroom. People weren't going to the bathroom. So what did the Imam tell him? Don't drink so much water. Now that you get up from your bed and you take three steps and you're sitting in the bathroom, should you drink water or not? Absolutely. Yes, indeed, there are still scholars that tell you no, don't drink water. Because the hadith says don't drink water. Not understanding the circumstance. Wherever you are, even if you live in Alaska, start with salt and end with salt. And inshallah, you live about 45 years old. We don't care. But as long as you do what the hadith says, the influence of politics on fiqh, 
Some fuqaha will tell you until today, continue to have children. May Allah bless your children. 10 children, 12 children, 5 wives, 55 kids. Why? Because this is what the hadith says. The multiplicity of children. Why? Because Rasulullah says, the Imam said, Yes, Rasulullah said that when the Muslim community was always outnumbered. Their number was small. They needed an army of men to face an army of men. One person was equivalent to another. One Muslim was equivalent to another enemy. So they needed to multiply their numbers. But today, do we focus on quality or quantity? If 40% of us are on welfare, why should we multiply those people? To become more lazy? To spread more uneducated people walking around the world? So the influence of politics plays a role in fiqh. Sometimes politics tells you have multiple children. But you have to understand that this was due to politics. Many of the scholars today tell you that wearing black is makruh. Don't wear black. <coughs> Why? I like to wear black. I like, you know, this is one of my favorite colors when I wear my, you know, suit or for example, a dress. It's makruh. Why is it makruh? If you see where it stems from, it stems from the time that our imams would tell their followers, do not wear black, wear green. Green is musta'ab, black is makruh. Why? Because Bani al-Abbas were wearing black, and the Alawis were wearing green. So the Imam says to his people, wear green to differentiate yourself from the Abbasis. But today, if you wear black, or you wear green, or you wear yellow, or you wear whatever color you want, it's not going to make a difference. So politics plays a role in understanding fiqh. Economy. Some scholars will tell you giving interest and taking interest from Muslims is forbidden. And obviously that's what the Quran says. You cannot take interest, usury, from a Muslim and give usury to the Muslim. However, if your bank, which is non-Muslim, according to their religion, it's okay for them to give you interest, that's fine, you can take it. So what happens when everybody puts their money in non-Muslim bank accounts? Because the Muslim bank, I don't want to take their interest, it's haram. So we shift all our assets, all our monies, into non-Muslim bank accounts. What happens to the Muslim banks? They go bankrupt. So we keep the economic situation of the Muslim community and the ummah in our mind when it comes to the institution of building our fiqh. Similarly, the growth of the Muslim community. What do I mean? One day the Muslim community at a certain point were all you know, in this area of Iran and Iraq and, and the Middle East and you know, some parts of Africa and the Indian subcontinents. So the Maraja had a different fatwa. Until they reached London, they reached Europe, they reached the United States, they reached the different countries where the majority were Christian. 
where the majority were Christians and Jews and Ahl al-Kitab and the minority were Muslims. And I recall a discussion between one of the Maraja and his followers in Tabriz, a city in Iran. That was called London versus Tabriz. Why London versus Tabriz? Because Tabriz and its people were saying to this marja' how can you tell us that Ahl al-Kitab and the Christians and the Jews are not najis? This is the first time we hear this. That Ahl al-Kitab are tahir. So he wrote them a prolonged letter saying, listen, I have to keep in mind all of my muqallideen, the ones that live in Tabriz, the ones that live in Najaf and Karbala, and the ones who live in London. How can they continue their life with individuals if I tell them that the majority of people that surround you are not Tahir and they are Najis? So we have re-examined the Qur'an, we have re-examined history, we have re-examined hadith, and we have come to a new finding that Ahl al-Kitab are Tahir. Brothers and sisters, the institution of fiqh is an institution that constantly, rapidly is in need of new developments. And that only takes place once we are able to develop scholarly individuals, those who reach ijtihad or they are near ijtihad. And I am not saying that they're going to come and we're going to have a marja' in Jersey and a marja' in Florida and a marja' in California. No. But if those people are mujtahid or they are near ijtihad, then they certainly, most definitely, will be able to influence the perspective of the grand marja' by speaking to him, by bringing new theories, new discoveries, and new forms of research to him. And that is how we collectively can bring change, insha'Allah, to the institution of fiqh and to the future of fiqh. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.